Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. And you can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have great guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about the ongoing saga of the uh, infrastructure program and reconciliation bills. We'll visit with Michael Cannon, director of health care policy at the Cato Institute. I want to talk to him a little bit about these uh, children vaccines from age 5 to 11. Lou Paper is an author. He's written several books. Uh, he wrote a book called Perfect, about the perfect game in 1956 World Series, pitched by Don Larson against the Los Angeles Dodgers, 27 up, 27 down. And Dave Beagle, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep, will be joining us as well. It is November the 5th, and on this day in 1941, the combined Japanese fleet received top-secret order number one. In just over a month's time, Pearl Harbor was to be bombed, along with Malaysia, the Dutch East Indies, and the Philippines. Relations between the United States and Japan had been deteriorating quickly since Japan's occupation of Indochina in 1940, and the implicit menacing of Philippines, which, by the way, was an American protectorate, with the occupation of the Comrade Naval Base approximately 800 miles from Manila, America's retaliation included the seizing of all Japanese assets in the States and the closing of the Panama Canal to Japanese shipping. In September 1941, President Roosevelt issued a statement drafted by the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill that threatened war between the United States and Japan should the Japanese encroach any further on territory in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific. The Japanese military had long dominated Japanese foreign affairs, although official negotiations between the U.S. Secretary of State and his Japanese counterpart to ease tensions were ongoing. The Minister of War, who would soon be Prime Minister, had no intention of withdrawing from captured territories. He also construed the letter, The American Threat of War, as an ultimatum and prepared to deliver the first blow in a Japanese-American confrontation, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And so... Tokyo delivered the order uh, to all pertinent fleet commanders that only the United States and its protectorate, the Philippines, but Dutch and uh, British colonies in the Pacific were to be attacked. War was going to be declared uh, by the West. By the way, <clears throat> our guest later, Luke uh, Paper, also wrote a book called In the Cauldron, the Tension, Terror Tension, and American Ambassador's Struggle to Avoid Pearl Harbor. Very interesting story. I've read part of it about uh, trying to fend off uh, war. He was trying to uh, make peace, and the discourse uh, obviously failed at that. But a very interesting story about how the United States, in some ways, provoked the whole uh, aspect of what happened uh, leading up to the Second World War. Very interesting story. Well, author by, uh, this is a Michael Snyder, a column by Michael Snyder, the most important news uh, com is the uh, location of this. I found it so interesting that I wanted to share it with you. Uh, the primary reason is because it's very thought-provoking, and I think it raises a lot of questions. In a year that's been filled with so many mysteries already, I have another very odd one to share with you. Emergency rooms are filled with overflowing are all over America, and nobody can seem to explain why this is happening. Right now, the number of new COVID cases in the United States each day is less than half of what it was just a couple of months ago. This is really good news, and many believe that it's a sign that the pandemic is fading. Let's hope it's true. With less people catching the virus, you'd think there would be mean our emergency rooms would be emptying out, but the opposite is actually happening. All across the country, emergency rooms are absolutely packed, and in many cases, we're seeing seriously ill patients being cared for in the hallways because all of the ER rooms are already full. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. The following comes to, uh, from an article entitled, ERs are swamped with seriously ill patients, although many don't have COVID. Inside the emergency department at Sparrow Hospital in Lansing, Michigan, staff members are struggling to care for patients showing up with much sicker than they've ever seen. Uh, Tiffany Dusang, 
The ER's nursing director practically vibrates with pent-up anxiety looking at patients lying on a long line of stretchers pushed up against the beige walls of the hospital hallways. It's hard to watch, she said in a warm Texas twang. But there's nothing she can do. The ER's 72 rooms are already filled. Can anyone explain why this is happening? If the number of COVID cases were starting to spike again, it would make sense for emergency rooms to be overflowing. But at this particular hospital in Michigan, we're being told that some of the main things that are being treated include abdominal pain, respiratory problems, blood clots, and heart conditions. Months of treatment delays have exacerbated chronic conditions and worsened symptoms. Doctors and nurses say the severity of illness ranges widely and includes abdominal pain, respiratory problems, blood clots, heart conditions, suicide attempts, among other conditions. The mention of heart conditions immediately got my attention, he writes, because I've seen, uh, been seeing so much of this news recently. For instance, a high school senior in uh, Pennsylvania just dropped dead from a sudden cardiac incident. The high school soccer manager greatly enjoyed his team's uh, championship victory Saturday. Later that evening, he was dead. Now, uh, late student Blake Barkridge's high school is mourning his ultimate, ultimately uh, untimely death. As uh, 6ABC in Philly reports, the tragedy occurred at LaSalle College High School in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. In a letter to parents, the school announced that the senior died after a sudden cardiac incident Saturday night. Elsewhere in the same state, an otherwise healthy 12-year-old boy was just suddenly died because of an issue with his coronary artery. As family and friends grieve, the cause of death is for a 12-year-old taken away too soon while warming up for school basketball practice. As Trib Live in uh, Pittsburgh reports, Jason Kidd, 12 years old, of Bay- uh, Bridgeville, Pennsylvania, died of natural causes involving uh, coronary artery, according to Allegheny County Medical Examiner's Office. Heart problems kill elderly people all the time, but is it odd that so many healthy young people have been having these problems? Over the weekend, Barcelona striker Sergio Aguero suddenly collapsed on the pitch, on the pitch during a match he was later diagnosed with cardiac arrhythmia. Sergio Kun Aguero, a striker for Barcelona's soccer team, has been diagnosed with a cardiac arrhythmia after collapsing during Saturday's match against Alives. And the 33-year-old Argentinian was examined by medical staff at the stadium before taken to a nearby hospital, where he's still waiting to undergo further examination and treatment. Just two days later, a match in Norway was brought to a screeching halt after a player experienced cardiac arrest right in the middle of the match. A football match in Norway's second division was halted on Monday after Icelandic midfielder uh, suffered a cardiac arrest during play. The 20-year-old Sangal player suffered the attack as the game uh, against uh, a team entered the 12th minute, his club said in a statement. I've been seeing so many of these stories like this, so why are so many young people suddenly having such serious problems with their hearts? Can anyone explain this to me? Thank you, uh, Michael Snyder, for your column. This raises serious public health concerns, and uh, I think it may lead right back to the vaccines. We don't know that, and I'm not making that accusation, but it's certainly a plausible consideration, isn't it? It has me very concerned. Within hours of the Biden administration unveiling a January 4th deadline for 100 million workers to get vaccinated, a small business advocacy group announces filing a lawsuit seeking to block the measure. The Biden administration's vaccine mandate is clearly illegal and will have a devastating impact on our small business community and our entire economy. This is according to Alfred Ortiz, the CEO of the Job Creators Network. JCN is suing the administration on the grounds that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration doesn't have the authority to impose the mandate and that, in any case, this is neither the grave danger nor necessity to issue it. It was just one of many court battles seen to ensue over the rules, many coming from Republican leaders accusing the federal government of overreach in personal medical decisions. At least 19 states have filed three separate lawsuits aimed at stopping the previously announced mandate for federal contractors, and the rules are being challenged by most of the Republican caucus in the Senate. Of course, uh, Governor DeSantis has called a special session beginning on November 15th to take up just this issue. 
The federal vaccine mandate is unconstitutional. I can't think of a worse decision for Joe Biden to make right now, according to Kansas Senator Roger Marshall. He said in a statement, Joe Biden's vaccine mandate is going to create more supply chain blocks, and that's going to lead to more inflation. Of course, Biden knows this, so he's decided to pull off, uh, hold off an enforcement until after the holidays. I will continue to do everything in my power to put a stop to this unconstitutional mandate, he said. Arizona Attorney General Mark Brnovich, who filed the first lawsuit in the country against the federal vaccine mandates in September, promised to file a new lawsuit Friday over the OSHA rules. When faceless government bureaucrats dictate what you must inject into your body, that's the furthest thing in the world from a safe workplace, said Brnovich. The government doesn't get to be your nanny, and it's certainly not your doctor. Lawsuits have been filed at all levels of government. Some police unions, including those representing Chicago, Los Angeles, and New York City, have filed against local mandates. Uh, this is uh, the kind of activity that we need to see. This is clearly way out of line. It's so unconstitutional. I really hope that the uh, court systems, judicial systems, uh, consider these concerns and uh, stop the mandates. That's what should happen. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you to whatever service or activity. And even if the person doesn't want to come out for socialization, if they have a question about, um, hey, where do I go for transportation? Where do I go for uh, a certain health care? If they have a need, we are able to point them in that direction through our information and referral service. So we're more than happy to assist in that as well. To find out more, visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's CallYourSeniorResources.org. Or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. That's a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app from the choicesocial.us website. Choicesocial.us. Check it out. Really pretty interesting. 
Coming up, going to be visiting with Lou Paper, the author of Perfect, about the perfect game pitched by Don Larson in 1956 during the World Series. Right now we have with us William Yateman, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website. William, it seems like years now that we've been talking about this <laughs> infrastructure program, and it's such a fluid uh, and the reconciliation vote that they want to have on these uh, Biden social programs. I understand there's a late-night update. Well, indeed, we got some breaking news. Um, so the House, uh, House leadership has scheduled a vote for this morning. Um, for both these infrastructure packages we've been talking about, and that's the $1 trillion physical infrastructure package, and that's uh, preferred by moderates, and then the multi-trillion, the roughly $2 trillion, quote, human infrastructure package that is the pride of progressive. Um, so the, the physical infrastructure package, as we've noted before, that's already passed the Senate, and that's a known commodity. Uh, the human infrastructure bill is an entirely different story. So leadership has been negotiating that behind closed doors all week. And uh, ultimately, they only uh, resolved sort of the major questions regarding the bill late, late last night, or the wee hours of, of the morning. Um, the long and short of it is I can guarantee you that virtually no member of the House of Representatives has read the bill, and again, they're, they're due to vote on it uh, in less than an hour. Um, so that's a real testament to the sausage-making, uh, alas, uh, you know, of legislation these days. And it really does go to show you the, the truth of that, uh, the, when Speaker Pelosi's statement, and I think it was 2012, or, or on the eve, or 2010, on the eve of uh, passing Obamacare, that lawmakers had to pass the bill to know what was in it. So we um, could read I it. I think we're seeing <laughs> yeah. that phenomenon again. <clears throat> yeah, it's such it's uh, you don't want to eat this sausage. I'll tell you, this is just really <laughs> tragic. This this is supposed to be a deliberative body who are making policy and making law for the benefit of the human of uh, Americans. This is just so tragic. Now, it's are they going to? Do you know what's going to propose? Are they going to try and vote on both bills this morning? Well, so the plan is to vote on the Build Back Better uh, Act, and that would be the human infrastructure bill first, and then to vote on the physical infrastructure bill. I'll say this, as you noted at the outset, the situation is fluid, and it's unclear whether or not Pelosi has the votes to pass that human infrastructure package. Um, the moderates, the centrists of the party, they feel as though they've been burnt by her repeatedly in the past. So. Uh, on the one hand, it's unclear as to whether or not Pelosi has the votes. On the other hand, none of it matters. Um, and that's because Pelosi broke with the Senate. Uh, this is actually one of those things that uh, uh, House moderates are so angry about. Pelosi had promised for months that the House wouldn't pass anything, that the Senate wouldn't also pass, that, that ultimately wasn't agreeable to Senators Manchin and Senema. Um, Pelosi broke that promise this week, and they just went ahead and, and went gung-ho and threw you know, everything in the kitchen sink. And that, well, not everything in the kitchen sink. I mean, you know, it could have been $6 trillion. But um, they, in essence, um, uh, shunted aside the input of the Senate. And what that means is when this bill is sent to the upper chamber, um, the upper chamber is going to work on its own accord. So uh, that is to say, ultimately, the human infrastructure bill will only be as generous or as progressive, if you will, as Manchin and Cinema allow, and the House sort of uh, through caution of the wind and, and uh, deliberately, uh, you know, shunted aside that dynamic. So that is to say, I don't know whether or not she has the votes, and even if she has the votes, what the House passes is going to get changed a great deal in the Senate. See, that is so interesting because the permutations and combinations of this thing are kind of mind-blowing. I mean, if, if in fact they pass both bills, uh, then they send it off to the Senate, the, the uh, uh, human infrastructure bill or the social program bill, that's, I don't think that's going to pass. I don't think it's just going to make it through the Senate. Do you? 
It would certainly not in its current form, um, and it, it gives me hope. I mean, you know, ultimately, we spoke a number of times, uh, you know, how I hope that both bills die on the vine. Um, it looks as though that fit. Well, who knows? The situation is fluid. But let's say it uh, were centrist to rebel and not provide Pelosi with the bill, the votes for the human infrastructure package. It's very possible progressives could withhold their vote for the yeah. physical infrastructure package. So I actually still have my fingers crossed that everything will blow up. So do you think uh, Pelosi would actually bring something to the floor that she couldn't pass? Now, if you had asked me that six months ago, I would have said, surely not. She has an ironclad rule to that effect. Mm-hmm. But as we've noted twice before in the course of these, uh, the, these infrastructure bill negotiations, she has done just that. Uh, she has, uh, uh, in essence, had to pull a proposed vote because she didn't have the votes. Um, so it, it was six months ago, I would have said, surely not. Um, now, after the, the, the recent history regarding this very piece of letter, or these, both these bills, um, I would say, oof, I don't know. And um, again, the situation, despite the fact that she may have scheduled the vote, I think it's very much an open question as to whether or not she has the vote. Or whether she doesn't have to execute that, does she? In other words, she may decide at the last moment to withdraw the vote and just not have the vote. So it's- oh, to be sure. So, oh, is that what you're asking? Yeah, yes. So, if it turns, she would not uh, incur a negative vote, uh, a negative result. Um, I guess what I had meant is she would never uh, schedule a vote. Right. Uh, six months ago, if you had asked me, would she schedule a vote uh, without the knowing that it would pass? Um, I would say no. So, it, yes. It, what I was speaking of is she would never in the past have scheduled this as a, an initial matter um, uh, were she not confident that she had the votes. However, uh, possibly today and twice before she has done, um, she scheduled a vote regarding these infrastructure bills and it blew up in her face when it yeah. turned out um, the caucus didn't have her back. Yeah, so the other piece of this, of course, is Joe Biden was apparently hitting the phones last night. Uh, trying to encourage people to vote for this bill. So that leads me to believe that it's on tenuous grounds and that uh, she may not have the vote she needs. Let's hope so. From your lips to God's <laughs> ear, <we're, laughs> William, I hope this all thing just collapses like a house of cards. William Yateman, again, research fellow at the uh, Cato Institute. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Michael Cannon. He's also with the Cato Institute. He's the Director of Health Care Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show and the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, 
and about the season's exciting productions, visit GulfShorePlayhouse.org. That's GulfShorePlayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Good morning, my Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse. Not only building this performing arts center in downtown Naples, actually groundbreaking on December the 1st, but also providing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. I hope you'll visit the website and get tickets, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Lou Paper, the author of Perfect, Right now, we have with us Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So I wanted to uh, get your uh, comments and thoughts on the FDA now approving this vaccine for young people, 5 to 11 years old. What are your thoughts? So uh, this was uh, not a surprise. The data for uh, 15 five to 11-year-olds on the Pfizer vaccine has been positive. The vote in the FDA's advisory committee was unanimous, 14 to nothing, that the benefits out, uh, outweigh the risk uh, for this young population. Even So even though uh, children are least at risk for uh, contracting and, uh, and suffering severe symptoms, uh, and even spreading COVID-19, uh, this, this vaccinating uh, children in this age group does appear to be a safe and effective way of reducing the risks to them and to others to whom they might spread the virus yeah. even more. So you do see a lot of uh, uh, medical professionals uh, who are looking at the data and saying they're going to vaccinate their children as well from my you know i'm having to wrestle with this question because i have eight-year-old twins we are uh since we got on the list and got appointments to get them vaccinated uh we're still sort of wrestling with the idea because you know it's not a slam total slam dunk no they are at very low risk of both contracting and transmitting virus and having uh, serious symptoms uh but there, you know, one of the reasons uh, in favor that uh, my wife and I are considering uh, doing it is, is because there are restrictions from which they will be exempt if they vaccinate. When I got a breakthrough infection, the, our, our eight-year-olds had to quarantine for 14 days because they were not, they did not, had not vaccinated, whereas our 12-year-old did not. Yeah. He had vaccinated, and so because of the school system's rules, he all he had to do is produce a negative test, and he could go back to school. The kids had to stay home for two weeks. Um, so, you know, that's another consideration uh, that, that that parents are going to have to weigh. Yeah, but you um, know, Michael, at, at least the FDA got out of the way of parents making these decisions. So, I, you know, I'm all for parents being able to make the decision. My concern is that this is going to become apparently uh, uh, Rochelle. Walensky and uh, Joe Biden, our president, saying, well, we're you know, we going to get 22 million kids vaccinated. I can just see now there's going to be a mandate for this uh, going around the states, if not in the nation. So it's got me very concerned because, it, you know, it's not, it's not uh, quite frankly, I don't know why you'd give a vaccine to somebody who's at low risk. It just doesn't make sense to me. And what the, the reasons you described have nothing to do with health care. They have everything to do with convenience of life. Well, that's true, and it's frustrating that those factors uh, would be pushing us to vaccinate the kids, right? Because uh, because it does appear that there has been an overreaction to the virus when it comes to decisions about whether to open schools, when to let kids back into schools as if they've been exposed to the virus. I think that's all. all the backlash against those excessive controls, those excessive restrictions, uh, helped fuel the victory of the Republican candidate in the Virginia governor's race. Yeah, uh, that was largely about education, and it was and the education dimension of that uh, of that campaign was largely about 
the reaction against uh, the, the influence of the teachers' unions who helped to keep the schools closed for an entire year. Lots right. of other places did right. not close the schools. Florida didn't close the schools nearly as long. And uh, a lot of places did not have uh, any worse outcomes than we did in Virginia. And so, yes, that is frustrating. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, uh, schools do require vaccine, all sorts of vaccines for kids before they can attend. And if this is a uh, low-risk uh, uh, proposition for the children, I mean, receiving the vaccine. But, but Michael, uh, but uh, the, uh, the, the vaccines that your children have received have all been approved and gone through the approval process. Uh, this is an emergency uh, vaccine that hasn't gone through the approval process. So they, they hope everything's going to be okay. And as I think one of the administrators said, uh, we're, we're going to find out what kind of impact it has on the kids <laughs> after we give it to them. That's, that's absurd. You know, uh, you're, you're right. But was ever thus. You know, the, uh, any, any new drug, any new vaccine that the FDA approves, it approves, and, and, and an emergency use authorization is an approval. Right. It is. Uh, they call it something else, but they're letting it out onto the market. They're letting people make their own decisions about whether to, whether to use it. And so the same thing is going to happen with this vaccine. It happens with every drug the FDA approves. There's going to, there are small studies for the FDA approves. It's several thousand uh, 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 test subjects in the study. They decide, based on those small studies, whether the drug is safe and effective, whether the FDA thinks the benefits are worth the risk. And then it goes out into the larger population, and much larger numbers of people use it, and only then, sometimes, only then do we find out that there are side effects, there are uh, uh, adverse events that occur in very uh, small groups, but that didn't appear in the, uh, in the initial clinical trials. And that is a concern. That's what gives me pause about having yeah. the kids, uh, about vaccinating the kids. But I'll tell you, Bob, this is unlike other drugs and unlike other vaccines the FDA has approved because uh, that process has been accelerated because of the massive numbers of people who are taking these vaccines. And still, the safety profiles look very favorable. Mm. And, and, so, uh, and we've seen that in adults, and I expect see that in kids as well, which is, uh, you know, one of the reasons we're leaning toward vaccinating the kids. And, um, and, and so, you know, that's another reason that uh, I, uh, I think that adults, particularly adults who are vulnerable to this virus, particularly adults over age 70, should feel comfortable receiving the vaccine because the safety profile is so favorable, the benefits are so clear. And uh, and it's a much safer course uh, when when it comes to approaching this virus. Well, that's so interesting. Uh, again, I just uh, earlier in the show we talked a little bit about the uh, column by Michael Snyder. Uh, I found it in zerohedge.com, and uh, he talks about how hospitals are filling up right now in emergency rooms, but it's not with COVID patients, it's with people who have heart conditions and a variety of uh, maladies. Uh, that could be, I mean, he's not, you know, Mike, I'm suggesting, and I'm concerned that perhaps they may all be a result of these vaccines. We don't know yet, and there's no hard proof. There's no double-blind experiments about this, but uh, we have to be concerned about the unintended consequences of this. Well, that's true. And, um, you know, another, uh, 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 this issue is also coming up with regard to a new pill. Yeah. that Merck has developed to treat COVID that the United Kingdom has approved. They approved it this week. Yeah. Uh, the name of the pill is Molnupiravir, and it's an antiviral drug. It cuts the, the, uh, the rate of hospitalization and death among high-rate COVID patients in half. Now, uh, the FDA is not allowing Americans to use this drug yet, even though the UK has said, yeah, the data are there, uh, the, the benefits are tremendous. Uh, the FDA is not allowing Americans to make this decision for themselves about whether to take this drug. Interesting. The same sort of dynamics are, are in play here. The, the, test, the, the, the clinical, initial clinical trials were small, but you've got a regulator who says the benefits are great, the risks appear small. 
Uh, and we could be gathering more data that drug could be saving lives here if people were allowed to make this choice for themselves. But the FDA isn't even meeting to consider approval of this drug until uh, later this month. And then uh, uh, emergency use approval comes. Uh, well, it's not sh- sure whether it will come and it's, and it's uncertain when yeah. if it My- does come. Michael, this is such an interesting conversation. We've got so much more to talk about than we have time to talk about it. So <laughs> we'll continue, continue this conversation uh, next week. I really appreciate your commentary. Michael Cannon, again, Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. You bet, Bob. All right. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Lou Paper. Lou is the author of a really several books, actually, uh, In the Cauldron. We mentioned earlier in the show, but also a book called Perfect. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by well, we're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Dave Bigo, the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Right now we have with us Lou Paper. Lou's written several books that we referenced earlier in the show, In the Cauldron, about the uh, tension and terror of the American ambassador's struggle to avoid Pearl Harbor. Uh, Side note, it didn't work. (laughs) But he's also written another book. It's called Perfect. And it's what a great read. It's Don Larson's Miraculous World Series Game and the Men Who Made It Happen. Lou, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, Bob. Thank you so much for joining us, Lou. So uh, why did you write Perfect? Well, I wrote Perfect because, uh, first of all, I'm a Yankee fan. And uh, obviously, I know uh, about Don Larson's perfect game. And in uh, the uh, late 90s, I went to two uh, baseball fantasy camps. Mm. And at the uh, fantasy camps uh, were uh, Yankee players, former Yankee players, one of whom was Don Larson. Wow. And during the sessions with the campers, Don would always talk about the perfect game. And uh, after the camp, it dawned on me that everybody knows about, and baseball at least, knows about Don Larson's perfect game. But a lot of people don't know about the players who were on the field that day. There were 19 players. Some of them, of course, were very famous, like Mickey Mantle and Jackie Robinson. 
there were a lot of players on the field who were not well known, like Joe Collins and Andy Carey. And of course, the most infamous uh, player in that game was Dale Mitchell, who was the last out. Dale Mitchell was the pinch hitter for Dodger pitcher uh, Sal Magley. He struck out. And when Dale Mitchell struck out, that was the perfect game. And so I decided that I wanted to write a, a book of not only about the game, but about the players who were there, the 19 players who were there. So the people will get a feel for the dynamics of the game and who were the players who were there and how did I get there? So the book not only includes uh, a discussion of what happened in the game, which not much because uh, it was a perfect game, although there were a lot of good plays, but also it, it focuses on profiles of the 19 players who were on the field that day. Yeah, a really great book. And uh, one of the things, what's the sad part about it, of course, uh, the, the high salaries that exist today in baseball didn't exist at the time. It was kind of a cabal run by the owners of baseball. And uh, to see what happened to some of these players after they finished playing in uh, what is one of the most challenging sports in, in the world, uh, ending up uh, really having not great lives after they retired. That's correct. There were, you got to remember, these guys weren't making the millions of dollars that players were today. In fact, I remember when I was growing up in, uh, in New Jersey, in Essex County, I remember uh, Yogi Berra and Phil Rizzuto used to work in the offseason at, at a men's clothing store in Newark. Huh. And, uh, but after, you're right. After, afterwards, a lot of these players, uh, except people like Mickey Mantle, who were so famous, but most of them really struggled. And I think the... Uh, the classic example of that is Carl Ferrillo. So here's Carl Ferrillo, who was a star uh, right fielder for the uh, Brooklyn Dodgers, played in uh, the perfect game. And then after the game, he struggled to find a work to make a living. And there's uh, this great story I found uh, where somebody's uh, walking down in New York. They're building the Twin Towers. And he sees Carl Ferrillo with a hard hat working there to build the Twin Towers. And he goes up to him and says, Carl Ferrillo, what are you doing here? And Carl Ferrillo responds, I like to eat. <laughs> He's a steel worker, though, isn't it, on a high-rise? It's just amazing. Right. Just amazing. Right. Exactly. Uh, so, well, yeah, the other part of the game that I found so intriguing is the fact that this umpire that umpired the game, the home plate umpire, I guess was fascinated with the notion of perhaps umpiring a perfect game during a World Series. Did that play into it at all? Well, I think it did. Uh, well, let's take a, a step back. So the last out of the game, as I mentioned, is Dale Mitchell. He used the pinch hitter for Sal Magley, the Dodger pitcher. There's two outs in the bottom of the ninth. He's the 27th Dodger to come to bat. Mm -hmm. The last pitch from Don Larson, every Yankee who was on the field that day, who could see the pitch. We're going from Mickey Mantle uh, to Enos Slaughter in left field, Andy Carey at third base, and Gil McDougal at shortstop. They could all see it because uh, Dale Mitchell was a left-handed hitter. Every one of those players said that that last pitch was high and outside, and they didn't think it was a strike. But when I talked, I, in I interviewed Duke Snyder, uh, obviously in conjunction with the book, and Duke Snyder said to me that years and years after the game, Bay Pinelli, this was his last game. He was the umpire. It was the last game that he was ever going to umpire because he was retiring. And Bay Pinelli said to Duke Snyder, first of all, he was very nervous, and he said that last pitch, uh, that last batter, anything close as far as he was concerned, was going to be called a strike. Hmm. And so there's a lot of debate. And Dale Mitchell, to the end of his life, Insist, and Dale Mitchell was a great hitter who rarely struck out. And Dale Mitchell, to his last days, insisted that that last pitch to him, which was called a strike, was high and outside. I love the way you framed the entire book. It's so interesting. You go inning by inning through the price, but also you use each inning to profile one of the players that had an important role in that inning. I think it was a great way to construct the book. I think, uh, in my mind, this is a, just a fantastic read for any baseball fan, and especially right after the World Series right now. It's called Don Larson's Miraculous Perfect uh, World Series Game, and the men who made it happen, it's called, again, Perfect. What was it like to interview all these folks? Oh, well, it was great, Bob, because uh, a lot of these players uh, were guys I watched when I was growing up. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, I talked to Duke Snyder, 
and I talked to every surviving player. So Don Larson, Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was, uh, it was so wonderful. I interviewed him in the uh, Yankee training camp in Tampa in the locker room. He had just worked out, and uh, he came in, and he was just so uh, unassuming, gentle, uh, and just wonderful to talk to. And likewise, the other players. Uh, it was just great to be able to uh, talk to them, and a lot of them were very anxious and interested in talking about those old days and about that particular game. So it was great fun. Yeah, I can only imagine it. Uh, uh, I'm just really thrilled for you, but you did a great job on the book. And again, the name of the book is Perfect. I encourage our listeners, if you have any interest in baseball, even if you don't, I think you'll find it as a human interest story to find that these people who work so hard at their so they were the best in the game, the very best. Uh, the very uh, We're talking about the best players that ever played the game. Well, but if I can interject, Bob, seven of the players who were on the field that day wound up in the Hall of Fame. Wow. So that should tell you something about the quality of the players who were there. Absolutely. Boy, the New York Yankees were a absolutely monolith during the time. Uh, absolutely. Lou Paper, again, I just genuinely appreciate your being on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Bob, thanks for having me. My pleasure indeed. And again, I'll reference the other book uh, that uh, Lou wrote. It's called In the Cauldron. And this is the story about uh, the ambassador to Japan from the United States leading up and what he did to try to prevent war between Japan and the United States, uh, almost uh, the ignorance of people and our politicians. It's just uh, really a timeless work and so interesting as well. All right, coming up, I'm going to be visiting with Dave Bigo. Dave is the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. Uh, we're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year. And since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deductions, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs, and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840. Or visit the website, nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Terrific organization. Among the programs they have is creating policies to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have this Dave Bigo. Dave is the author of The Devil at Our Doorstep. 
Yeah, he wrote the story, The Travails of Dealing with Union Bosses over the course of two and a half years and all their dirty tricks against his customers, against families, his workers, you name it, trying to get him to sign a neutrality agreement, which would basically bypass secret ballot and allow them to go by one by one and sign up his employees to uh, become members of the union once they got their 50% plus one. It would unionize uh, his business uh, executive management services they said i'm not going to do that i'm not going to sign it if you want to have if you want to unionize you're going to have to do it by secret ballot well they didn't want to do that needless to say they didn't have the strength to think they had the uh what the uh what uh things to offer to the employees so uh the uh, fight ensued dave prevailed and wrote a book about it it's called the devil at our doorstep dave thank you so much for joining us thanks bob and it's a true story and uh, as i've said on your show a couple times People should read my book, which the unions won't allow them, the uh, media to talk about because it exposes the truth about them, and, uh, and it should be a national bestseller um, if uh, the media could talk about it. Right. But it shows you what's going on today in this country and uh, them trying to turn us into a socialist, communist country and control us. Yeah, the last-ditch effort is going to happen this morning, apparently. I just found out that Pelosi wants to bring these two bills to the floor uh, in an attempt to, uh, through legislation, make us more of a socialist country. I'm really taking us down the road toward uh, financial extinction, quite frankly. Uh, unbelievable. Well, that's true. And the thing is, is that, um, you know, the uh, bills that she has, is, and they have a lot of money in that, and they're going to get reunions. And they're going to uh, also try and, and get the PRO Act passed on that, which will allow the unions to force unionized people basically go to card check like uh, they tried to do to us in our company and uh, and try and do it to uh, companies all across the country so this this is this is a big thing uh, you know uh, not just this fact that they're going to spend all this money with for ridiculous things and uh, put this country in deeper debt than it's been but they're also going to try and let the unions uh, take over yeah. and uh, uh, the American people need to wake up and fight back. And I think they start doing that in the election in Virginia and in other places uh, Tuesday. Yeah, uh, certainly uh, the school boards are getting an earful, aren't they, from the uh, from parents. So it's uh, it's kind of... So uh, any uh, developments right now on the union front? Uh, ju just the fact that, uh, you know, behind the scenes, they're pushing on things and controlling things. And so like the teacher unions... Uh, controlling the kids in school and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, this this goes back 30 or 40 years. The union's been trying to brainwash our kids as they grow, and as they grow up. Uh, they um, are on the side of being uh, socialist, communist union people, and uh, they don't understand what our free market and uh, capitalistic society is all about and how well it can do for them. So you're up in Indianapolis, and uh, I'm concerned about these uh, mandates, these vaccine mandates and what's going on in the country right now. I think it's fracturing our society and our culture, but it's also inhibiting the workforce. I think it's going to create a lot of joblessness, quite frankly. Uh, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, we're, we're real concerned about it because um, we think, you know, we're already having a hard time finding uh, people all across the country because, you know, a lot of people... Uh, backed out of working because of the uh, um, unemployment benefits and the weekly cash they got from the government and stuff like that. And, right. uh, and trying to find people to fill positions now is really tough. And this is going to make it even tougher that uh, they had to have mandates and stuff like that. And um, we do know that, uh, and, uh, you know, we're working on how we're going to uh, handle this thing. But, uh, Biden really needs to back off off of this because I think we're going to see um, unemployment to go up, you know, as people drop out because they don't want to be vaccinated and and other things by uh, the government's regulations. How do you think people are going to respond to having their kids vaccinated between the ages of 5 and 11? Well, I think they're going to push back and it's going to be tough. And, uh, you know, this, this whole thing is, uh, this mandate is just an overkill. And... Uh, if people look and see, you know, OSHA put this all together, and I've been through this with our corporate attorney and that yesterday, and the um, the the uh, program they put together, OSHA put together, is 490 pages, Bob, mm. and it's crazy stuff. And 
you know, it, it's going to be tough on people. And, uh, you know, we know a lot of our people uh, across the country and in our corporate office have, have been vaccinated or doing well and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we also know there's some that uh, haven't been vaccinated because they're they're against vaccinations for other problems they think they could have. And, uh, you know, but uh, all, all of our people, you know, across the country, Bob, uh, we've only had uh, six or seven people total that have had COVID. Hmm. And this is, by the way, for our, our listeners' benefit, uh, doing business in over 30 states with over 6,000 employees. So, uh, and dealing in close quarters with uh, with other people. So it's that's that's just very interesting. Now, uh, as I understand it, the so- fines uh, are substantial, both to the company, or mainly to the company. It does it, uh, as I understand it, it's up to $13,000 per infraction. And if it's intentional, it could be up to one hundred and thirty thousand uh, dollars, apparently. So, the uh, yeah, it, it it could be really bad. And uh, you know, we are as a company, um, we're putting together programs and policies, and uh, to uh, uh, make sure that uh, we meet these things as as the time goes on. But uh, we're we're really praying that um, um, <clears throat> the conservatives stand up and push back, and they get this thing canceled. Um, because it's, uh, you know, the things that are going on with it are not good for the American people and for the, uh, the economy. Yes, is it's January the 3rd, I guess, is the date that it's going to be implemented, correct? January the 4th. January the 4th. So to allow people to get through the holidays, but then uh, the uh, stuff hits the fan. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. And um, I want to tell you that uh, some, a couple of senators in here in Indiana uh, they're going to push through things through. They're they're working on a um, um, a bill to <clears throat> um, restrict uh, abortions, and um, and that's going to be submitted in Washington D.C. And uh, they're they're really good people, and they're also going to do another one that uh, puts term limits in Washington D.C. so that uh, people can only be there for a couple terms, and that's it. And uh, I'm glad to see that some people that uh, <clears throat> in politics are waking up. I am too, uh, and I think there is an awakening occurring. I hope it continues, but uh, I think this all started with the school systems, and now people are saying, "What the heck is going on? We got to get our country back," and that's a good thing. So that's exactly right, and uh, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to me as I see and talk to the people that. Uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, they're they're tired of what this administration is doing and how they're being controlled, and they're pushing back. and I hope that makes a big change in the uh, uh, 2022 election. Yeah, is there any movement in Indiana here in uh, Florida? We have uh, our governor's called a special session in order to create a law uh, f- uh, to resist the uh, mandates for employees, uh, private employees, but also for contractors. Anything like that happening in, in Indianapolis? or Indianapolis? Yeah, our governor is, uh, he, he is working on putting something together. He's, uh, he, uh, he's even talking about filing a suit against him. Yeah. Um, so, it, you know, and I think we're going to see that in a lot of states across, uh, uh, conservative states across the country. Yeah, no, we've already, I know the governor's already filed a suit. A lawsuit against the uh, the president. So it's just unbelievable that we're going through this. I just can't believe that uh, there's been such an infringement on our personal freedoms, and it's just uh, they think it's it's just unbelievable. Anyhow, Dave Beagle. Well, Bob, it's all it's all because they want to take us down and turn us into a socialist communist country where they control us, and yeah. uh, the American people don't get it. Even though they say, "Well, we'll give you this, we'll do this for you that." That's all the same thing the unions do when they try to force unionize people, and it's not true. Yeah, great read, though. The Devil at Our Doorstep. I encourage you to get a copy of the book. You can do it on uh, Dave's website, uh, thedevilatourdoorstep.com, on my website at a nice discount, by the way, bobharden.com, and, of course, at all book purveyors. You can get a copy as well. Dave, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, and uh, you and your listeners, I hope, have a great weekend. You as well. Thank you, Dave. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, On Monday, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman, as we have for the last 15 years on my show, to talk about current global events. We'll also visit with Larry Reed. He's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, lived in the Beltway. Now he's out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and he's written a couple of great murder mysteries. 
Baba will eat her in his sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>